This special episode is a workshop titled Understanding Queer Geographies, and it was presented at the 2021 Green Party U.S. Annual National Meeting. This is Ann Link. I'm the host. Um, this is the workshop Understanding Queer Geographies uh, that's uh, presented by A.J. Reed. Hey, thank you, Ann. Uh, thank you for those who are coming. Um, uh, this is a, I've kind of done this workshop before um, under a different title. It's more about understanding like the LGBT community. This one um, is really exploring more about uh, the LGBTQ plus community a little bit deeper than just what does it mean to be gay, asexual, transgender. Um, we're actually gonna understand about, as the title says, understanding uh, queer geographies. Um, so before we get into that, for those of you who may not know who I am, my name is AJ Reed. I use they, them pronouns. I am a member of the Illinois Green Party. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a background, as you can see right here. Um, so I've been doing activism and organizing since like the late 90s and active uh, in the queer community as, as a queer person um, in the community and elsewhere. So why am I using the term uh, geography? Uh, it's, geography is a very interesting field. If you don't know much about it, you know, geography is not just about, you know, this is a river, this is an ocean, you know, the capital of Illinois Springfield instead of Chicago, you know, and it's more than just those things. Now, geography is understanding space and place. And I'm particularly going to talk about human geography, um, even more specifically, uh, queer geography. So we're exploring queer and trans communities that are connected socially, culturally, spatially, even politically um, to one another, as well as those physical environments. So we're going to talk about those things along the way and see how the queer and trans community um, plays intersects with those things. And you'll hear me say the term queer. Uh, I do use, I use queer as more of an umbrella term. Um, so that's why you'll be hearing me say that from, and during this presentation. So before we get into that, I, th I feel like we need to have like a framework going into this presentation. And, and so this is a little bit of what's in AJ's head. And I know, I know it's a scary thing for those of you who know me, it's, it's not that it can be a little um, interesting at times. So the framework going into this, you know, if we're going to talk about uh, queer geographies, I think we need to understand this from an anti-racist perspective. You know, uh, the, the queer community is not just made up of white folks. You know, we have, uh, Black folks, brown folks, Asian folks, indigenous folks that are also part of the LGBT community. So when we talk about that, we're talking about dismantling white supremacy and colonization in general. Uh, we have to have a revolutionary feminist framework as well. That means we have dismantled the patriarchy. So in summary, we, we are saying trans women are women, trans men are men, and sex work is work because we have folks who are trans in our community. And we also have some of our members who are also part of the sex work community as well. And we can have a whole different workshop about that at a, hopefully at a future A&M. Uh, we, we have to think of this from an intersectional um, perspective and what you see down below that, we do not live single issue lives. That came out of Audre Lorde. She said that, um, she said that I am a black period woman, black poet, black person. And she put those in there because she wants to show everyone that she is more than just who you see before you. And that's important to understand because every single one of us, we do have our lives intersect multiple things. I'm AJ. I'm non-binary. I'm also queer. I live in rural America. I also have certain privileges. I also uh, have various ethnicities. 
I'm educated, so forth and so forth. And each of those things play a role in what goes on politically as well in my life. And hopefully we can explore others and other people's lives. So there's intersectionality. So queer liberation, uh, we was trying to dismantle queer and transphobia. That's all that's really saying. You know, we have to think about that. All the policies that we have today um, do come from a cisgender, which means someone acknowledges their assigned birth, cisgender, uh, heteronormative, meaning uh, we have normalized heterosexuality in our society. So a cis heteronormative society. And we can see this through a patriarchal system where we talk about toxic masculinity and everything else that plays a role into queer and transphobia. And then we have to have an anti-capitalist perspective because capitalism does feed all these oppressions that we are seeing. Hopefully in, in the other workshops you've participated up to this point, they kind of hopefully talk about that, that capitalism does feed racism, sexism, uh, queerphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, uh, all these things. And we also have to have a critical disabilities perspective as well, because we also have folks in our community who are disabled and they are facing issues along the same time, as well as they're dealing with challenges that are being confronted with them. Are there any questions with this framework before we continue forward? So, as I said, you know, uh, when we talk about the queer and trans folks, you know, that's a part of a larger community. There's not a physical boundary when we talk about the queer and trans community. Uh, we may see it in different um, places that we are in, but, you know, when we're talking about the community, it's very expansive. So they're right here in Illinois. Some of them are in we, Pennsylvania, obviously, in France, Singapore, you know, even researchers down in Antarctica. We, we're all over the place. So we're talking about this large community. And now to acknowledge that existence and then how does all of those communities intersect with the social problems that are happening in our own communities? So one of those things are urban spaces. This is a photo of in Chicago. Uh, it's, it's called Boys Town. It's one of the neighborhoods in Chicago. So more often than not in research um, and even someone's just observation, when we talk about urban spaces, I'm talking about metro. In this, in this sense, I'm talking about metropolitan settings, Chicago, Boston, uh, Newark, New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, New York, so forth and so forth. Um, and even some other, um, your most second populous, third populous cities are also will be considered those metropolitan areas. So these urban spaces, you'll see a lot of those in the queer and trans community in these spaces. They'd be more likely to be in these spaces because they find these metropolitan settings more of an oasis for them to thrive in. So while this may be good in some regards, because there may be better resources, better accessibility, um, trying to develop a community like here in Chicago, like Boys Town, um, have something identifiable that we can see visually. Uh, there are still problems that we face um, in these urban spaces. Uh, this, is, this is not a the list. This is just an example of something that goes on. So some of the problems that we do see uh, is gentrification. Uh, when we talk about gentrification, we're talking about the economic development of pushing working class folks out in a neighborhood and pushing them elsewhere. We, this has happened throughout the decades, centuries, and now millennia, close to a millennia. 
And again, when gentrification happens is when we start seeing our folks being pushed out as well. Now, the interesting thing to note is that while we do get pushed out, um, and this one thing I didn't mention when it comes to uh, that framework we just talked about. So while gentrification happens, we also need to be mindful that even those in our own community are doing the gentrifying. So Boys Town, for example, in Chicago is a good example. So while there are folks like, you know, we need a neighborhood, we need to be doing something, uh, there are folks who are pushing a whole working class Polish community out and working class Italians out in that area. They're pushing out working class Puerto Ricans out from that neighborhood in the uh, middle part of the 20th century just so they can have their own neighborhood. So we have to be mindful that while gentrification happens to us, we can't be doing the gentrifying as well. And we've, and we've seen this in other places. Um, and there's this idea, it's called homonormativity. I talk about heteronormativity. Homonormativity is just normalizing of what is being perceived as queer trans. And this is something that get, does not get talked about a lot. Um, there are a lot of articles um, do mention this. Um, I recommend you checking out uh, the website um, Everyday Feminism and just type in a key search on um, homo normativity. There are a couple of good articles about that. Um, and a lot of scholarly, journal, scholarly journals also talk about this idea. And because of neighborhoods like Boys Town in Chicago have said, you know, this is what it means to be queer and trans does not set up the ideal, not the ideal, but doesn't set up a good situation as to, well, this is what it means to be queer and trans while there's other queer and trans folks that have different issues. So like housing is one of those things. Those in Boys Town have the money to stay in that neighborhood and some of the rent there is like close to like $1,500 and above, you know, I can't afford that. AJ can afford 550. <laughs> That's about it, you know? So, so housing is an issue in urban spaces. So if you're gentrifying folks out and you're creating more work live spaces, um, that's not going to be beneficial for some of our folks. Uh, homelessness is an issue among queer and trans folks. And so there's a lack of housing in urban spaces. That means there's going to be more homelessness, which means that's going to be um, other social problems are going to be happening. Addiction is one of those things. Uh, human trafficking is another issue. So those two things alone, I, we've seen often in Chicago, particularly queer and trans youth. Uh, when we, it's, it's been recorded that if a youth, a queer youth, in Chicago cannot find housing within 48 hours, they will, they will turn to drugs if not getting uh, picked up for human trafficking. That's a situation that, that's happening in Chicago right now because of the inadequate housing situation that's happening in Chicago. And it's not just Chicago. Uh, I can look at LA. I can look at New York um, for those things. I can I know of some places in Philadelphia that's similar to those numbers as well. Uh, but there's a lot of good nonprofits that are trying to do their best with the housing situation, you know. But again, when we turn to civil society, the nonprofit sector like that, uh, that could be a, a problem in and of itself. Healthcare. Again, urban settings uh, have better access to healthcare. Uh, a lot of places either have some sort of maybe public hospitals 
I know Chicago does. Um, I can't speak for what uh, if New York and elsewhere has, but like in Chicago, we do have um, Cook County Hospital, which is a public health um, facility um, with an ER, what have you. But, but most of the time, it's ran by um, university med, med schools. So, University of Chicago Medical School, Northwestern Medical School, they all have their own hospitals. And that means we're beholden to you know, the university policies as to who gets healthcare and who doesn't. But even outside of that, you know, we still have the issue of not having Medicare for all. So because of that, some of our folks can't get adequate healthcare. And it's, it ranges from basic healthcare to having certain needs, whether it's, um, surgery for our trans family members or just getting medication for those who have HIV or AIDS or medications for STDs or even examination for STDs. And so because of that, um, we have folks who are, who are sick. Uh, I have a friend um, who has HIV and he has the means to have his medication, but at least in the state of Illinois, uh, there was a, a part of his plan had to switch and there was a concern of him going from the subscription prescription that he was going to, to possibly going to more of a generic brand because he had to save money somewhere. And it was not, the most effective drug it was the safe that was a safe choice in order to stay on the regimen that he was on so even that that kind of healthcare needs to be on the forefront of our minds social service uh, i'm talking about social work i'm talking about mental health counseling and if anyone who knows uh, or just reads any of the articles that are put out there or even listening to any of your friends social service um can also be inaccessible in urban spaces um and because of not many therapists are even trained to handle lgbt populations um, or even mental health because uh, i can tell you uh any University with a master in social work program, they do not have any courses when it comes to diversity at all. They may have one class, but that one class is going to handle race and ethnicity, LGBT populations, um, women, children, and that's it. And that's the one class to say, okay, check mark, that goes towards your MSW. There's only like, I can think of three universities. Uh, I do believe university, I think UPenn, MSW has one, uh, if I remember right, because I looked at them once. Uh, Wisconsin-Madison, and I want to say uh, Hunter College in New York. Those three have a course on LGBT populations with social work, where they study for 12 weeks to talk about these things. Um, so yeah, so because of that, and I, and I talk to, uh, social workers and counselors all the time. The one thing I didn't mention in the beginning of my intro, I also work in social service through an agency with, um, queer youth, trans youth as well. And because of not having those kind of classes or even continuing education programs for social workers and mental health counselors. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come up to me and say, and AJ, I've had these clients. I don't know what to do. Or AJ, I'm the only one who's doing this. So my caseload went from 10 clients to now 40 clients because now they're specialized and now that person has a burden to work with that many clients 
And then who knows how long they could be in that agency if that's going to be their caseload. And they're not getting paid to do that. I mean, they're getting paid to do that, but they're not getting paid more to do that work, I should say. So all I'm saying is, you know, we have social services, but we have to think about on the other side that even social services are having issues. And because of that, they're not providing the adequate health care they need. There's no support groups. There's not many support groups, I should say, um, for trans folks, for queer youth, um, for queer adults as well. My agency um, is the only agency in Illinois, and we cover most of Northern Illinois, um, which goes into Chicago, where we were the only ones who had a virtual drop-in center. We had drop-in centers, but we were the only ones who had a virtual drop-in center just so the youth can have somewhere to be once a week. No other social services was doing that. So with the other two points, um, public restrooms, I think all of us know about uh, the handlings and the dealings and the understandings of why public restrooms um, is a challenge uh, as well. And because that leads into public and social policy. Uh, when we do have public and social policies at the, the municipal level and the state level, um, those affect a lot of urban spaces. And in fact, you know, I think most of us know that a majority of our legislation is kind of geared more towards um, urban spaces than rural spaces. And because of that, and the result of that um, means that there's gonna be this outcry of queer and trans youth, or excuse me, queer and trans folks who are gonna get really gonna be pushed out more into the margins because of that, public restrooms being one of those. We're making great strides with that. Um, any questions on this topic before I go on? I know I'm just throwing stuff at you, so hopefully everyone's okay at this moment. There we go. Cool. So if you think urban spaces can be bad, uh, I can tell you rural spaces is, is even worse. Um, so this picture here is in Iowa City, Iowa. Um, this is uh, um, a crosswalk. I forget what the streets are, but I know it's near the university. Um, this is a crosswalk that the city just put in. Just to say, hey, you know, we stand beside our queer and trans communities. But this got news. This was a, this was national news. Because I think the one road I want to say uh, one of the crossroads here is, is a state road. And so the state of Iowa and, and the national I want to say the Department of Interior got involved too. The U.S. Department of Interior got involved in saying, um, yeah, you can't do that uh, because there's guidelines, what the crosswalk colors need to be in, and that's not, that's not it, and you need to do this. And the city of uh, in Iowa City said, uh, no, we're, we're going to keep it. So that, that, so that made headlines. So even though Iowa City is... Um, more of a somewhat urban area. It's still rural in, in many cases. Um, and some of the surrounding cities like Coralville, um, Marion, Cedar Rapids, elsewhere is um, dealing with these kind of issues. So when we talk about rural spaces, um, these are some of the things that we were talking about. So there's a lot of overlap between uh, urban spaces and um, rural spaces. So like with housing, it's very limited when it comes to um, rural spaces, um, if not like none. You know, um, there may be no housing 
in some of these spaces. Um, in my town, Sterling, which is a town of 10,000, we only have two housing options. We have the private shelter, which the executive director doesn't want anyone who's queer or trans. And we have the YW as well. And even though the YW is making a lot of great strides, doing a lot of things with LGBT populations, um, their housing is only for women, but also for those who are um, 18 and older. And even while I'm having conversations with the executive director, I asked him like, what does housing look like for trans women? Um, possibly can we focus on youth a little bit? That's all we have. And in some villages, um, there's no housing at all. So because of that, they have to, people have to go elsewhere. Um, they may have to go to another town, but as you can see, towards the later part of the list, uh, transportation. Um, like my town, we have no transportation uh, at all. We have no mass transit. So it's relying on friends, uh, families, um, anyone to go to a nearby town. Um, there may be a county transportation, but that may be something that's not even existence. There's no trains. So that's an issue. Healthcare, we have hospitals, um, but they may not have services for queer and trans youth at all because they don't even consider that population at all. Same way with social services. So when you're talking about rural spaces, you know, there's, there's still this fixated mindset as to, you know, here's the folks we need to work with. And, you know, if you have folks who are a little bit more mindful, they'll probably go with it. But otherwise, it's majority of the time going to be uh, white, cis, gender, male folks who are making these decisions. And while we do have queer folks who are um, getting into municipal government, county government, you know, uh, they too have a different perspective and everything. So jobs and wages. Again, we're, we're making strides on the jobs front. We have a lot of folks who are employed. But because of uh, rural spaces, always, well, dare I say, get shafted when it comes to uh, maintaining major employers in towns um, because of major, for tax break purposes, for strategic purposes, um, they leave. And then other, so folks may have to commute to work. Again, where I live, uh, four or five minutes away is a region called the Quad Cities. You know, people may have to go there and they do. They may have to go to Peoria, which is an hour south of me. They may have to go to Rockford, which is four or five minutes north of me. Um, just, just for a job, for major employment. Or may they turn to uh, second, third, fourth careers into something else for jobs. And then once again, those jobs, you know, there's a whole different employment issues, you know, again, restrooms. Uh, will the employer use the pronouns that someone said, if someone tells them, you know, my name's AJ, use they, them pronouns, are they going to honor that? Um, same way if uh, a trans woman says, you know, I use she, her pronouns, a trans man saying I use he, him pronouns, so forth and so forth. Th these are issues we need, we need to be considering. And then the same way with those wages, you know, uh, it's a thing that folks get discriminated against because of who they are. And, and there's, there's, 
data out there where queer folks do get paid less than their heterosexual, their hetero colleagues. And even uh, trans folks also get discriminated against because of who they are also. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a concern in rural spaces and it goes back to public and social policy once again, because public and social policy is geared more towards urban spaces than rural spaces. You know, those of us in out here in rural spaces, you know, we have to have certain kind of conversations. And unfortunately I have a state representative who is a Republican and she's very much of the uh, Trump mindset. And so I had to deal with her through my participation um, at the city and county level where she just kind of baits her base when it comes to these public and social policies. And and an example of that. um, So in Illinois, we just passed a... um, well, two things. We, we passed uh, an LGBT history curriculum bill where those grades 6 through 12 can, um, the social studies teachers can now teach LGBT history in the classroom. The other major, the other ma- major piece of legislation uh, is furthering our comprehensive inclusive sex education which is now offered for k through fifth my representative backlashed on this saying like this is horrible and kids don't need to know about sex education at this level and everything so instead of picking up the phone and calling myself or others who work with youth and talk about how this is important, especially for the, L- the LGBTQ plus community. She went on the offensive and saying, you know, this needs to be not get passed and we need to need to move on and everything. Something that it needs to be done. People, because people need that education. And, and another one, another piece of legislation that came through was decriminalizing um, contraceptives. In Illinois, before that bill, if you were caught with contraceptives, a condom, a male condom, female condom, doesn't matter, uh, you will be criminalized. And we have to tell our youth, because we provide contraceptives for our youth, we have to tell our youth at the drop-in center that if you take a condom from our drop-in center to your home, you got to be careful because if the police see you with that, they're automatically going to think, oh, they must be prostituting. They got to be doing that because that's all cops know. That if you are queer or trans, you got to be automatically be doing sex work. So that's something that, again, my state representative was pushing back against among other representatives and senators in my state. So this is why it's important to understand these kind of issues. Um, are there any questions on this, on this topic? And again, if... If you do have questions, you know, put them in the chat. I will try to acknowledge the chat when I see it. Um, but this is a safe space, a, a safe digital space. Um, so if you have a question and you want to ask, please ask it. Um, we, we, we're here to learn. We're here to understand one another, um, especially on issues like, like this one. So if there's any questions about rural spaces, um, I do, uh, so immigration, 
I just want to check something really quick. Yeah, cool. So immigration. So I, again, this is one of the intersections when it comes to um, the queer and trans community. Immigration is one is one of these intersectional issues. So why is it why is it intersectional? Well, we have folks coming from other places to the United States because of a certain social and po public policies that we do have and accessibility things that we have. So they're coming here to meet their needs. They come from Iran, they come from Mexico, they come from uh, Uganda, they come from India, they come from uh, Armenia and Turkey, all to meet, get their needs met because there's still international communities who either will criminalize folks if uh, not outright, not just imprison them, but th there'll be death, especially in places like in Africa, unfortunately. We have folks who uh, do, do die because of the policies that are happening there. So we have folks who come here because to get their needs met. So they're trying to seek political asylum in these places to come to the United States just for political asylum. And with the current um, Biden administration and the previous Trump administration with their stance on immigration, uh, we still have folks who are being held up that are seeking political asylum. So because we have being fo folks being put in detention centers, uh, we have folks who um, are being denied with their visas or if not their um, uh, green card, um, as well as other bureaucratic paperwork for their asylum, uh, this is an issue. So when we talk about immigration, it's not solely folks from Latin American countries coming from the Southern border to come in. We're talking about folks coming all over the place. And we're talking about folks who, you know, are coming here to seek some sort of freedom, whatever that means for them. But folks are also being driven out, not, be, not just because of their needs being met and to seek that political asylum, but they're also because of foreign policy. So because of the foreign policy that we have, that we put onto others, is where we have folks coming in as well. So, you know, with all the conflicts that we've started, with other uh, diplomatic, or I should say diplomatic actions that we try to take into other countries for the name of democracy, uh, is when we start seeing an influx of folks moving out. And so we may, we may be supporting uh, a group in one part in the international community who might be not only just trying to marginalize queer and trans folks, but they really want to eradicate them. And we're not even taking a stance on that when it comes to foreign policy. So when it comes to immigration, you know, that's something that we need to be mindful of as well is, you know, uh, when we look at foreign policy, we have to look a little bit further as to, you know, what is being done here. And especially if we are activists and organizers fighting for queer liberation, this is where we, we really have to examine further as to who are the players and who do we need to be mapping out that, po that power mapping that we need to be doing as organizers and seeing, you know, not only where the money is coming from, but who is allying with who and what policy is being driven and how that's being done when it comes to that, when it comes to uh, immigration. Uh, Presidential complex. 
So we have folks who do get locked up. I just mentioned earlier that we had youth who would get criminalized because they carry a contraceptive. So when it comes to prison industrial complex, you know, there's a, a segment of us, not just a small segment, but a huge segment of queer and trans folk who are in prison. And so when we look at the prison industrial complex, it's not, not only the school of prison pipeline, which said that is a factor. Um, it's not just stopping frisk or with dogs, um, stop and sniff. You know, it's, it's not just that either. I mean, these are other methods for the imprisoned industrial complex to grow. Um, but within the prison industrial complex, we have to be talking about um, solidarity, um, solitary. It is most correctional facilities policy that if someone who is trans, that they do not go into what's, you know, general population or gem pop, um, that trans folks may not go to gem pop, they would be put into solitary confinement. They may label it something else, but it's solitary confinement. So, and we all know that what happens when we put folks into solitary confinement, especially if it's more than 48 hours, it really messes with our mental state. So imagine if you, you are trans and now you're put into solitary confinement, not just for the weekend, you're there every day for a week. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, month, month and a half. This is this is what goes on in our prison system. So when we have folks in solitary confinement, then there's nothing they can do. And then when guards become guards and someone is outlashing because they want to get out or they want to be in a space that they want to be in is when guards may have to, you know, unfortunately have to be brutal about it. But even if they're not in solitary confinement, you know, folks, trans folks, you know, will probably be put into the wrong gym pop. So you may have a trans woman who is in a, um, male gem pop and vice versa with a trans man maybe put into a, a female gem pop and, and, and I've had these conversations with those in the inside we had one here not too far from me uh, in Dixon, Illinois we have a minimum security state prison here right? I, I talked with her you know, in, in her experience and everything, um, my union branch, um, I'm in the Industrial Workers of the World, um, IWW, and my branch is in Milwaukee. And I'm, and I'm also involved through our um, Incarcerated Worker Outreach Committee, IWALK for short. Um, and we have access to what's called core links. And so we talk to those on the inside, and I've talked to at least three trans women um, in Racine County on what, what their experience is and their, what they need, what needs to be done. But when I was talking with them, they say, you know, they put us into solitary confinement. Um, the person here at Dixon, uh, she was put into male gym pop where she should not have been at. So, because, so we have that. 
there's limited to no access in prisons when it comes to queer for queer and trans folks needs. So they may have a doctor on site or a doctor may come visit or they may have a therapist on site or they may come visit and they can only they only do basic needs or if it's really a, a specialized thing they may come in and do that or send them to the hospital for something but outside of that they don't meet our basic needs most of the time which is the other issue is um having not having our needs needs met not just for uh, medical needs but just you know if, if someone who's trans and they are they they are transitioning um they may not get their hormone treatments or estrogen treatments um on a regular basis that they, they need to be doing and everything um so those needs you know we that those are not met. And then it comes back down to public policy. Um, the one thing to know with prisons, if you may not know, is that if you look at where prisons are placed at, majority of the time, they're in rural spaces. And the way they get pitched to be in these rural spaces is that it's going to be an economic driver. So in my state in Illinois, um, we have a town called Pontiac. It's a very small town. The state correctional facility there in Pontiac is the only major employer. And it's put there. We have another one up the street, um, Thompson Correctional Facility, which is a federal prison now because Obama it was a state uh, prison, but Obama uh, sold it to, well, not Obama, excuse me, but the estate of Illinois sold it to Obama for, uh, to be a federal prison. And so there's other places. Dixon, Illinois is the other one. Uh, and there's several others, not just Illinois. If you go to look at California over the years, um, especially in the 70s and 80s, there was a huge increase of prisons being developed. And so when the California moratorium project was happening during the eighties, they were showing these numbers. Um, they were mapping them out to say, you know, this is where they're happening. They're happening in rural spaces. They're not happening in LA or San Diego or the Bay area. It's happening in rural spaces. So because they're in rural spaces, uh, some of these inmates go out there. So we have queer and trans folks in these rural spaces, which means they have no connection to family members. They have no connections to other community members to go visit them. So you have organizations like Black and Pink who do um, letter campaigns for pen pals or send them a card for things during Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas um, and other holidays. So because of all that, this is we have public policy that states, you know, this is why, you know, these prisons need to happen and it's for economic policies, um, economic driving policies, so forth and so forth. But again, thankfully, we had some legislation got passed like for California. But I think it's nationwide, but I know particularly in California to do away with for-profit prisons. Um, which is that's an issue all on its own. So those are just a couple of the issues that intersects with our community. So there's social movements, right? So we've always had social movements when it comes to our community. Uh, we can go back way, way, way back. 30s and 40s, if not in the 20s. Um, that social movements have happened. Um, these are some of the, these images are some of the social movements that have happened in a, in a little bit more recent history, relatively speaking. So we have, um, if you can see it here, uh, let me, if I can move this. There we go. 
Um, this image up here in the upper right-hand corner is um, Gene Compton's, which was the Compton Cafeteria um, uprising that happened um, just before Stonewall riot that happened in 1969. Um, if I believe, if I remember correctly, if I'm looking at my poster, um, 67, but hopefully someone may correct me, but I think it was 67 um, when this happened, uh, the Compton cafeteria uprising and then you have act up during the 80s and then right here um the more the color the colored um, photo is the dyke march this is one of the dyke marches that happened so with social movements uh have always been the forefront so from the 60s until now we've had these movements um these movements have pushed forward legislation. They've questioned elected officials. They've questioned local institutions that still create these kind of oppressions upon us and in our society. And so we've had a lot of success in these social movements. These social movements have, have gotten our own elected into office. And by our own, I mean Greens. Um, we've had several Greens um, who are queer and trans, um, not only in the United States, but uh, around the world, as we know, because our, our party is an international party, the only international party um, that we can say here in the United States among, that the two major parties cannot say. Um, so yeah, these social movements are, are very important and we need to be honoring these social movements and we also need to be educating folks about these movements and why they happened and why they continue to happen. Because it was this is not just a, a, a flash in the pan in history at Gene Compton's, at Stonewall, with ACT UP. The Dyke March is part of the legacy of Stonewall. What's happening right now with the assault on the trans community is happening because that pushback we still get from conservatives and that pushback we get with other folks who work with conservatives. That's why we have these kind of movements. We need to be thinking about these movements and we need to reflect on how do they become effective? And some of these folks still exist today, still are with us. And we need to be getting as much information as possible from them before they pass on. Because when we learn from them, we now have the knowledge that's been shared and we can transform spaces. We can transform urban spaces. We can transform rural spaces. We can address issues of immigration and address issues of the prison industrial complex and other related issues I just mentioned a moment ago. And so we need to be thinking about as a Green Party, how can we advance the current movements are happening right now, as well as how can we get involved and create our own movements that are not just specifically queer and trans, but how do these other issues interse intersect with queer and trans communities? So we, we need to incorporate our folks into the conversation. We need to fold them in into work groups or whatever the case may be in order to have their voice heard. We may have to push them forward to amplify their voices. Because for too long, some of our voices have been quelled in green party spaces. So we really need to be mindful 
because some of our folks have been involved in these movements who are now involved in the Green Party. And there are certain organizations that we want to work with, but we have to think about how can we work in coalition with them or partnering with them or what whatever we need to be doing to get them so we can work together. Because we cannot work in a silo. We have to be networking with other organizations out there. And if we can, if we do not incorporate a queer and trans perspective, then we're not gonna fully understand the issues at all, are we? We're not going to understand the black trans woman who has a perspective. We're not going to understand the brown trans man who has a perspective. We're not gonna understand the asexual youth who has a perspective. We're not gonna understand the disabled bisexual who has a perspective. We have to understand these things because we're all, it's all interconnected. It really is. We have to do that. Are there any questions? We have a lot of time left. So if there are any questions, please ask because I did most of the talking, so. Um, Anne here, I have a question. Yes, Anne. Um, just because it's been in the news a lot, um, you know, you're talking about the bathrooms and the rural areas. And I was just thinking about some of the attitudes in rural areas. Um, like, do you find that, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's worse in rural areas? Or is it just that in the cities, the discrimination is more subtle? Or, or what do you hear from people? So I would say it's, it's wor overall, it's worse in rural spaces than it is in more urban spaces. Um, and when I say that, you know, there, there are pockets of towns that may not be like that. I can think of a few on top of my head that are nearby me. But overall, if we're talking about just bathrooms i mean it is bad um because we even though like like in my town we have democrats elected um it's still a very conservative county um and in fact most of the counties out, out here in northern illinois and going down in central illinois are mostly conservative counties and so because of that you have conservative folks who are Republicans and Democrats who are elected um, don't think that the bathrooms is a, an issue at all. And then these are also folks who are also holding positions, not just elected positions or appointed positions, but they're um, school administrators. I have one school administrator at my nearby high school um, who understood about the bathroom thing. And so the compromise was to have a gender neutral bathroom was not only on the opposite side of the school, but in the gym of all places. And so the student had, so some of the students had to walk across campus to this one bathroom and then go to their class and, oh yeah, that's right. Um, they have five minutes to do that because it's five minutes break between classes. And that's just like in rural areas, you know? Um, so it is hard in rural spaces and I, and I have a little bit more difficult conversations in rural spaces than I have in urban spaces because I, I used to live in Milwaukee and Chicago. So, I mean, having those conversations in those areas were a little bit better from time to time, but being in rural spaces and I lived in rural spaces most of my life, um, it's, it's even more difficult and yeah, yeah, it is. And it's, um, 
trying to understand that mindset as well as trying to connect with folks on how do we change this? And that's hard in rural spaces. And, and I used to do, I, I did hopefully next A&M will do it again of uh, how to campaign and organize in rural communities. Cause that's something that needs to be talked about because it is difficult to do that in rural spaces. Did I answer your question, Ann? Yes, um, a related question. Um, I have a friend in Florida who's um, in, been in a lot of need of social services. And it also seems like on that end, for various financial reasons, the rural areas just don't have the money to even, to, to, regardless yeah. of discrimination, they don't even have the money to pro provide them. That's true. No, it's very true. Because, um, again, back to public policy, um, well, again, rural, rural spaces get the short end of the stick. They really do. Um, funds are not appropriated where they need to be at for in rural spaces, um, even at the state level, but the federal level. Um, supposedly, uh, some of the funds that Biden put out is still held up in the state of Illinois. Then they haven't released it out yet. And there's businesses and everyone else that are not getting them in rural areas. So, so yeah, discrimination aside, there's that issue in itself. And again, if we have this perspective, this intersectional perspective that if we don't give dollars to rural areas, then in the context of this workshop, the queer and trans community are not going to get these things. They may have to find jobs elsewhere. They may have to go, they have to move somewhere in order to have their needs met. Um, so yeah, because what, what I read, um, Gallup, the Gallup poll this year, uh, three years ago, there was 4.5% of those United States have identified in the LGBT community. That's four and a half percent. Um, this past Gallup poll, I want to say was, I want to say it was close to 6%, if not close 7%. So that's a, that's a huge step, right? But of that, there were like, Three million folks in the LG, in the queer and trans community moving in rural spaces because they want to get out of the issues that are happening in urban spaces. So that's so when you have that many folks moving into rural spaces, now it comes become that quandary. We're not having dollars. We're not having dollars at the municipal level. Um, these folks moved out here because they want to get away from issues in the urban spaces um, that being uh, impo imposed on them. And now they have this, or they moved into rural spaces because that's all that's, they had to do it. That's like their only move they had to go to. So yeah, it's, it's an issue all the way around. Any other questions? Yeah, I'll ask a question. Uh, you were speaking about prisons, and mm -hmm. I, in that context, you mentioned briefly something about pen pals. Would you elaborate, please? Uh, in terms of what? I mean, what part do you want me to elaborate? Like well, how that works, or? I know nothing about it and did not know that there was a particular um, medium, a particular uh, way of... Um, and uh, I'm just thinking about how many people in prison then might benefit from that. And I don't have any idea how that is structured. Sure. So, um, so again, through an organization called Black and Pink, and you can uh, look them up online, Black and Pink. Um, there's several chapters um, across the United States. Um, 
and even the IWW um, with through IWALK, I just mentioned, again, that's the Incarcerated Workers Outreach Committee. Um, both those organizations do some sort of um, letter writing or pen paling program. Um, so like through Black and Pink, what they do is that they get a list of inmates from the correctional facility. And then people can just volunteer um, at, during their chapter meetings and just write a letter um, to someone in the inside that gets sent off. And then, yeah, they can start being um, pen pals in that fashion um, throughout in my branch, the Milwaukee IWW branch and our, and our IWALK group. Um, we are linked on to a, a, an email server called Core Links. So we can email those in the inside um, pretty much on an everyday basis. You know, there's a group of us that we have these um, Core Links sessions and we email folks from uh, five different facilities in the, in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, that's a, a great way to start building relationships with folks who are in prison and start when you start building those relationships to understand what's going on there. And then we can start talking about prison abolition efforts. So I would encourage you again, um, Black and Pink is one, one of the organizations and uh, talk with someone who is part of the um, Incarcerated Workers uh, Outreach Committee, IWALK, because um, there are a few chapters in the United States with that as well. Hopefully that was helpful for you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Anyone else? We have less than five minutes left if I'm reading this right. So there's no other questions. Um, like I do in, in some of my classes, uh, I can let you go early so you can Take a break and get ready for the next sessions you're about to do. Love.